Well, it is a privilege to be talking church today with Rick and David. You uh, are incredibly brilliant people, and we were golfing the other day, courtesy of Rick, thanks for hosting us, and we were chatting about theology and just life in general, and uh, it was our first time actually meeting, Mm -hmm. and I thought, let's do a podcast. And so, Rick, you have been a traveling evangelist with InterVarsity, and David, you are the dean of Bethel Seminary, Mm -hmm. as well as now you do pastoral coaching and... right. Theology is of big importance to you both, and apologetics, really equipping people to know the Word of God well. And we come from different backgrounds and denominations, but I think the beauty of it is we agree on a lot of things, Mm -hmm. and we agree that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so today, maybe we can talk about some of the things that pastors and church leaders and faithful Christians maybe are dealing with and struggle with to talk to maybe people in their church or their neighbor or somebody, they get questions that maybe they feel like, hey, if I had one of you sitting next to me, it'd be really great to answer, but maybe we can equip them with some of those strategies. So thanks for being on here and talking church today. Yeah, our pleasure. Great to be here. Hi, good to see you. Yeah, <laughs> nice to see you, Rick. Yeah, and you're friends. <laughs> yeah, we, we are, are yeah. for a long time. And so it's a treat to have you, you both on this. Let's dive in and start with Probably the big one that you get, you travel college campuses quite often. Um, you basically say, try to stump me with a question, <laughs> yeah. right? You, we play stump the chump. Stump the I'm chump. The, You're I'm the chump. the chump, yes. Okay. But usually you don't get stumped. Well, so we'll see usually, how I do. We'll see yes. how I do today. You might be the first one in a while. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll give it a shot. Okay. But I'll give you an easy one, or, or maybe not an easy one to answer, but a very common question that people get is with the question of evil, right? Mm. And even this morning, uh, found out about something in our church that happened that was remarkably evil that, that happened um, at one of our locations um, that we obviously pastor through and deal with things. I thought about it this morning. People think about it quite frequently. They, they hear about uh, a child who, who drowns. They, they experience um, fatalities or natural disasters, things that are hard to comprehend. And the question that you probably get on these campuses that I'm sure you both wrestled with before as, as uh, leaders is how could a God that you claim to be good allow this evil, heinous crimes, horrible things? I won't list all of the, the horrible things, but people can imagine. How could a God that's good allow those things to happen? So whoever wants to start. Can I start and then turn it over to you for a second? Sure, fire away. One of the things that David and I have talked about over the years is that the first thing is people need is care. Mm. I mean, you can jump into the why and into the philosophy. I remember many years ago when my father passed away, we were all very uh, sick about it. And my mom finally, after a few weeks, sat me down at a restaurant. She was not a Christian at the time. And she said, Rick, why did this happen? She wanted to know the why. But at first, it kind of took a while to build up to these more philosophical resolutions and theological answers to the problem. But at first, people need to be cared for. And I think as apologists, pastors, church leaders, that should be our first impulse. And then what happens after that? Maybe you can go into that a bit. Yeah, no, I just let me put an exclamation point on that because I think that so many times people are feeling, you might call it the personal side of it, which is the the pain, the white heat of pain that I'm experiencing, right. uh, as opposed to the philosophical side, which are all the explanations and the answers. And if they're asking the personal question and a pastor responds with the philosophical answer, you know, that's uh, a really a mismatch of right. question to question to answer. 
And I would just say, too, from my own personal experience, the place where I nearly uh, left the faith was, was sort of going down the rabbit hole of trying to explain the problem of evil. Really? And uh, I was in a graduate school seminar. The whole seminar was on the problem of evil. So you could see this was going to be an exciting course, you yeah. know, lots of uh, rainbows and, we have a short and daisies. Podcast, so. Yeah, exactly. But um, as we went around the table, each person shared their own experience with thinking about and experiencing evil. And every single person in the class, except myself, they all said, I used to believe in God, then I encountered evil, now I don't believe anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was the last one, you know, we went around the table and it came to me and I thought, oh my goodness, uh, what do I say now? I'm sort of like the only one here, you know, and I started there and it kind of went downhill. So this is a, 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 an existential question that has to do with uh, first caring for people who experience <laughs> the pain, but also reinforcing people's uh, faith and understanding enough that they're not sort of thrown off, you know, come to the conclusion that, hey, the Christian faith doesn't make any sense. Actually, it makes more sense. But that's a, a sort of a personal encounter for myself where these two sides, the sort of personal caring side and the philosophical answering of the question side, mm -hmm. both come into play. Yeah, there, yeah. there's certainly questions be, beyond the question, and there's several layers to this. But when, you know, if we have a basic level in this conversation, where's the starting point with this conversation? Because I think, I think if, to your point, if it's not in care as a pastor and in ministry, then then you're not being the shepherd that God's called you to be, right? You're just being a professor that's trying to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And of course, we need those too. But when it comes to when someone is ready to have this conversation, to where maybe they're wrestling just like all the people in that room or just like you were, where have you guided people to starting to answer that question to where it does make sense with the faith that mm -hmm. we're building? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one way to transition from the personal to the philosophical is to ask the question, are you ready uh, for this conversation yet. You know, ask their permission. Would you like to go there? Would you like to talk about some possible solutions, some possible reasons that theologians have given uh, to address this problem? And if they say, yes, we can go into it, if they're not ready, they can let us right. know. So there's a sensitive moment there. But one of the things that uh, theologians talk about, and, and you're one of the theologians on yeah. this, is to go to what's called the free will defense. In other words, God didn't create us robots. He created us like himself with free will. And one of the <laughs> uh, theologians that I follow, he said, well, maybe God has a thousand dollars of free will and he gave us a hundred of it. He maybe didn't give us quite as much as he has, but he gave us something. And he gave us the ability to choose otherwise than himself. He has offered us an invitation to be in relationship with him and he's given us the ability, if we wish, to say no. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's what happened in Genesis 3. And so when we fell away, when we did exercise our free will against God, we brought the whole world down with us. And so now we live in this war zone, this battle zone, where bad things happen to good people, where the incident that you gave, the example of a little girl drowning, uh, that's just a horrible thing. And that's, this, unfortunately, the sort of thing we can now expect in this uh, fallen world. And uh, do you want to take it from there? Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. And, of course, the question then becomes, why is freedom so important? Mm. What, what makes it such a big deal that we have this gift of freedom? 
And I think the answer to that goes right back to the reason why God created us, which is to experience community, to experience community with him. And the reality is that for us to have a love relationship, an authentic human connection, a healthy friendship even, or maybe something more intimate like a a marriage between a husband and a wife, but all these human relationships require that those who are part of it enter in freely. They can't be coerced. And coercion uh, is uh, evil in and of itself, and we can think of examples of coercion where people are forced (laughs) into a relationship. And because that's not a good thing, God does not force us into a relationship with him or with others. Mm -hmm. Thus, freedom becomes sort of the the critical component that allows us to experience the thing that we were created to experience, which is community, love, friendship, relationship. Yes, and our freedom, our uh, ability to choose, uh, really flows from who God is himself. So we are created in his image. So the freedom that he has given us is not just some arbitrary thing that he thought up one day. Mm -hmm. It's something that's innate in him that he has passed on to us as his image bearers. Mm -hmm. I want to get to that in a little bit as well. Another question that comes to this that I think has helped me even in answering, maybe you can expound on this, is there's, there's kind of a back and forth, right, between someone who says, well, that's evil. And maybe an apologist or a theologian would say, how do you know it's evil? Yeah. Right? The idea that good is there mm-hmm. and that there's something to compare it to. Where does that fit in to this conversation around evil to the idea of good itself? Yeah, there is the parallel problem to the problem of evil is the problem of the good, yes. which is what you're <laughs> describing. So that's terrific. If I'm able to declare that this particular event say, the murder of a child is evil, that presupposes that I have some understanding of what is good and what is evil, and that that's not just made up by human society. For instance, the idea that this is an evil action is not just rooted in culture, right? because we can look at other cultures or our own culture even, see things that maybe the culture says is good and yet know that it's not good, right? Right, right. nor is it rooted just in our own personal preference or opinion. So there's something transcendent. There's something higher than you or me or us that is the standard of right and wrong. And I think that is a pointer, a strong pointer to God. And actually that was, so back to my own experience right. here, that that insight was one of the things that kind of drew me back to God. Uh, it actually was through the work of C.S. Lewis that I encountered this because he himself had always argued, there's too much evil in the world. But then he thought, wait a second, if I know that's evil, there must be a standard of good. Where does that come from? And the only reasonable explanation there is the existence of God. So surprisingly, in this course that I described before, I did a major research on on C.S. Lewis. I read virtually everything he wrote, and I came across this story in his own personal life and realized, that's exactly what I need to understand. Mm. And so it was a key element in helping me straighten out my thinking and coming back to the Lord. When when you look at any theological argument in modern times, there's constant battles and videos of, you know, proving this side wrong and proving that side wrong. Um, in, in your study, if you could, you know, the, the phrase now is like steel man, right? The, the, the other side. Yeah. I've not seen anyone 
aside from those who just kind of give up, really have a, a good answer. And, and personally, I've, I'm obviously I'm a pastor. I believe this, but I, I really try to be inquisitive and try to learn about what other the other side is. It it seems that every atheist or agnostic that I've come in contact with, when it comes to the problem of evil and good, there seems to be an impasse of, I don't know if you've seen any other arguments that you feel, hey, this this would be kind of the strongest that I've seen against the idea of good, but it really just seems to lead towards a nothingness that I've never found. Again, that's why I believe in God, obviously why you mm -hmm. remained and ended mm -hmm. up pastoring and being a theologian. But maybe for those, are, are there other things that, that people bring up that are strong arguments that that they make a case for because it seems to me in all the the disagreements I see it they they change the subject to something else <laughs> that redirects against from the problem of good mm -hmm. am I am I seeing that right again maybe maybe you'd say there's other things but. right now I'm writing a book with an atheist on ethics his name is Tom really enjoying that process he's a good guy Tom is trying to put forth the idea of an objective good, an objective ethic that's built into nature. So it's nature itself. So he always wants to appeal to nature. My question back to Tom is, well, what is nature saying right. to you? How do you interpret it? How do you know that your interpretation is correct? And that's been kind of the battleground that we've been on lately. Other atheists that we've read together will say, well, there's really no objective bad or good out there. We're making it up as we go. There's a kind of existential flavor to it. And now you're getting into what different cultures make up and you end up with cultural relativism. Culture A is different than B, different than C, different E, and so forth. And so that's as far down as you go is what culture says. Um, I don't know, are there other uh, approaches to that you can think of? Yeah, I think a main one. So you and I engaged in some uh, public events where we uh, presented the Christian faith, and one of the people that we were dialoguing with, an atheist, um, was a utilitarian. So he thought that the greatest good for the greatest number explains right and wrong. I don't think that's a successful move uh, in the end. I also don't think that uh, Tom's approach, which is basically Plato warmed <laughs> over, yeah, right. so you, this has been around for a while. <laughs> um, but that approach, again, doesn't work for the reasons that you describe. It's completely ambiguous as to what, quote-unquote, nature is telling us. Um, so I'm pretty convinced that while there are other approaches that try to uh, to talk about um, the, the source or the origin of good and evil, uh, they're not successful. I think the only other one that I would mention as having some significant playing time today would be, well, it emerged in the process of evolution. evolution. Yep. Mm -hmm. And as we evolved as, you know, beings that were able to think, our brains got bigger and now we can think and we can speak and we can interact. And so that's how we started to think about right and wrong. The only problem with that is if, if right is only advantageous for uh, evolutionary survival, that doesn't put any duty or obligation on me that I actually do what is right, good. Right, right. There's yeah. no reason why I ought mm. to do the right thing. Yeah, I might believe that it's the right thing or feel that it's the right thing, but that's not saying I am obligated or duty-bound or that I should do this thing. This is the old uh, getting from is to ought or from description to prescription. You yeah. can describe certain behaviors but as soon as you start to say, well, we're going to prescribe these for everyone else, yeah. that's a pretty big philosophical leap there. And uh, I don't know. I've never really seen it done successfully from an atheistic perspective. 
One of the things that is top a topic that's very popular today is obviously around our identity, around different things like that. It seems to me that the great equalizer of all scientists, billionaires, thought leaders, musicians, the great equalizer is life, right? The breath that we have or the end of it, right? When you see somebody die a tragic death, you know, a few months ago we saw those the billionaires die in the sub accident, right? And it's, oh my goodness, the, the, the great equalizer is that at any moment your life could be over. It seems that to me, maybe, and again, you've you've both had much more experiences with people in in academia who are non-believers than I have, but it seems to me almost that maybe there there is a root cause of what they're trying to prove against, which is against God, due to maybe a, a situation that they're mad about, or they they are frustrated with God, or they can't wrap their mind around this. But when it comes to life. It seems like that's kind of under attack today. Like again, who our identity is, the image of God. You mentioned it. Um, obviously, there's topics like abortion and other things that are different political and and things that are really popular today. But when it comes to life, why is that so important? Into again, as a human, because God is eternal. He's been there forever. He, he's Alpha and Omega. But for us, our time on Earth is finite. Is there a is there a significance to that into the, the answer of why God created us? Hmm. And maybe I'm, I'm going on a rabbit trail. <laughs> I think that's pretty central to a lot of the cultural conversation these mm -hmm. days, maybe a step below what's presented. Uh, one of the authors that we read, the philosophers, um, Michael Roos, is an atheist and a very popular atheist philosopher. And, and if I'm reading Roos correctly, he's pretty much saying there's really no meaning out there. Yeah. We need to just imagine it. We need to figure it out. And so when you talk about issues of life and death, the Christian has a substantive place to go, and that is God is creator. He loves us, wants us in his family, has made us in his image, has an eternal future for us that redeems who we are as fallen beings. But if I'm an atheist, none of that apparatus is in place. You're on your own. And in one of his writings, uh, Roos says, the atheist is, is admittedly here caught flat-footed. He uses that phrase, flat-footed, hmm. because to create meaning asks a, bit, a deeper question. How do you know that the meaning you just created is meaningful? <laughs> right. And so I have, uh, in, in reading Roos, it has kind of reinforced my Christian belief in Christ and in being created in God's image and knowing that the deep meaning is being part of his family, whereas you're out on your own here, you're on the island with no God or no deep meaning if you're someone such as Roos. Yeah, the ir irony of this thing is that in our contemporary context, there are uh, sort of political ways of thinking which have um, as their goal making sure that we have an absolute wide range of options to choose from. Mm -hmm. and. We should never restrict anyone's freedom in any way. I think the Christian pathway says that that kind of sort of smorgasbord of absolute choices, I can choose anything, you know, uh, that actually in a way diminishes my freedom. Uh, and uh, what it says is that if I am creating my own meaning, 
I am, as it were, designing the meaning of my life or the purpose of my life sort of from scratch. Yes. Because woe be it from me to say that there's a, a transcendent God who is telling me what meaning is, you know, or what uh, flourishing is all about. In the end, uh, I, I sort of make this trade of I have the, the smorgasbord of options, but the option I make up doesn't actually mean anything. And so I think, on the other hand, to imagine God's way, which is there is a like a highway of opportunities and options. There are different things we can choose to do with our life. You know, uh, we could be a, a, an excellent carpenter in and uh, honor God through that, or we could be a pastor and honor God through that. So there are different choices that we can make. But God also puts kind of like guardrails on the side of the highway. So that it's not this absolute range of everything, but rather uh, a, a range, but also a limited range. Mm -hmm. And within that limited range, we follow God's will. We see the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And the meaning that emerges from that is something that has you know, divine input and divine guidance and mm -hmm. ultimately uh, divine affirmation. I think that's the kind of meaningful life that a lot of people are looking for. And if I may add to that, on college campuses— when our churches, people watching this podcast, listening, when you think about your church and think about young people, middle school, high school, college age, early 20s, there, a lot of them are looking for meaning. They may not put it that way, mm -hmm. but behind the presenting questions and the presenting issues are issues of meaning and identity. And somehow the apologist in us uh, has to develop the skill of drawing that out, mm -hmm. of, of basing our apologetic on that. Instead of waiting for them to ask just purely intellectual questions about where did the world come from? Does God exist? Uh, they are asking existential meaning of life questions like you just raised. And so the, the skilled apologist, I think, the mm -hmm. 21st century, listens to that mm -hmm. and starts there with them and then gradually moves them into these more intellectual questions that maybe lie even a level level deeper. But you have to start there because if you try to start down here, you're going to be an irrelevant intellectual apologist and right. no one will be listening to mm -hmm. you. Well, it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned that, Rick, because I've seen that to be true doing several years of college ministry myself in the University of Minnesota. And even when proven wrong, oftentimes... My, I'll include myself in this group, but young people, whether that be Gen Z, I'm right in the middle of millennial and Gen Z. Even when proven wrong, that doesn't necessarily shape their worldview like it used to. Mm -hmm. so, oh, okay, I'm wrong on that, but I can be right because the world has told me I can be right. Mm -hmm. And it, this goes far beyond just identity or sexuality or things like that. But to your point of meeting, and, and it's so important, I think in a, in a world that has a God that's created us, and again, we talked about sovereignty and free will, and of course, there's lots of discussions around that. But even in a world that that God is is fully God, he's created everything, it was his idea, right? There's a, a growing group of people that, that feel that that's not significant enough. And I think to your point, Rick, is we don't need to convince them it's significant enough or not. We need to show them why it is significant mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the missing link, again, to your point, is you, we have some, on one side a fundamentalist attitude of how do you not believe this? Again, all the three of us sitting together, we've reconciled the problem of good and evil and how 
if evil exists, then there must be a good. Where does that good come from? It comes from God. He's, you know, he's the creator of everything. But in some ways, people are fine that we believe that. Maybe they even believe that. But there's that missing link mm-hmm. between why does it matter to me? Mm-hmm. Because even in this libertarian mindset, and forgive me for going long. I want to hear more from you guys. But in a libertarian mindset of look what I can do, look what I can accomplish. Oh, yeah. Self-empowerment. Yeah, against the government, stick it to the mm-hmm. the, the billionaires, mm-hmm. all those people who've been hoarding the power, you know, the people with historic power in our country, races, all sorts of things. There's a common thread of this is we want our own individualism. Mm-hmm. Is there a case or or could you help maybe describe to somebody who might be in that situation, and I believe if there's people listening, many in their churches are in this situation, especially those under 30, who the case of where does my identity fit into this grander plan that God has when it seems that there's a bunch of evil, there's a bunch of hate, there's all these different things. If I dye my hair blue, you think I'm crazy. And there's almost this lack of creativity and the legalism and the fundamentalism and all this, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. So the way I find that is by finding it in the world hmm. and finding it in the secularists and finding it in LGBTQ and finding it everywhere. What would be your case to that person to say, here's where you can find that beautiful, unique individualism, but that's tied to our creator, that it doesn't become a, a almost a, a brand of who we are, but it comes under the authority of the great story. Mm-hmm. Well, you've asked a, a big question there, and there's many threads <laughs> sure. to that. Uh, but I, I definitely believe that there are versions of Christianity that um, understand some of the structure, but have missed the point. Hmm. And I think fundamentalism, you know, is an example uh, of an approach to the faith in which we have the structures and the rules and the and the categories, but we're missing the heart of it. Right, hmm. and. So we, we can certainly move away from that kind of uh, brittle, I would say, and legalistic approach to the faith, but we want to capture the reason behind the rule. So let's say, for example, uh, the church says um, that uh, we should not be having sexual relationships, sexual intimacy. Uh, prior to marriage. Let's just take that as a, as a sort of a rule. The fundamentalist is going to have a rule. You break the rule, God's going to punish you, you're going to hell. Right. Okay. If that's what Christianity has to offer, we've missed the point. See, for me, the rule that we don't have sexual intimacy prior to marriage is actually rooted in something far deeper, hmm. which is that God wants you to flourish. He wants you to experience the depth of everything he has in mind for you, which is a beautiful relationship between a husband and a wife. And so it's that the rule against sexual intimacy outside of marriage is not God preventing you from having a good time, and he's going to wrap your knuckles or worse, or worse, send you eternally to hell if you break the rule. The point is that the rule is one of those guardrails that helps you get back on the highway, and the highway is the life that God intended for you to experience in community. Right. So that would be a place to start is to make sure you understand that all the, the moral guidance of the Christian faith is, is intended to open a pathway for us to experience joy and flourishing rather than some kind of a, a rule that's preventing us mm-hmm. from experiencing the best possible life. Right. 
I think a lot of these questions, too, need to be framed up in the larger biblical story. If you just go to the prohibition passages on these things, it seems kind of random. But uh, for, to get back to your example of sexuality, proper of, uh, use of the gift of sexuality that God has given us makes sense in the larger narrative of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship, created us in his image, invites us to relate to each other in a way that reflects him. And when we fall away, we are redeemed in those relationships and redeemed back to him, reconciled back to him into a glorious end. And that's kind of the quick summary, you might say, of the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so any rules that we come up with that might be in Leviticus or First Timothy or Corinthians or whatever it might be, uh, makes sense in this larger narrative, okay? And I think a lot of us know that, but we forget that when we're dealing with young people, which I do all the time, when we're dealing with young people, they need to see how this fits into the grander narrative, the whole story. Otherwise, it just seems random, and mm -hmm. it seems like a prohibition, and it seems like a bunch of rules that they can do without because it's that preventative measure against mm -hmm. their fun, a preventative right. measure against the good life. And mm -hmm. why would God be against the good life? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, in my graduate studies, I had a class meta-narrative of Scripture. Excellent. And when I finished that class, I almost sat there staring at the computer going, wow, this exactly. makes so much more it sense. Does. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. It does. I, I think maybe as pastors, we could learn to be better at teaching that, right? Mm -hmm, be better mm -hmm. at, at weaving it together. I think at times we fall victim of the felt need and we, we teach about the felt need. We teach about what the Bible says about the felt need, but maybe the final missing piece is we, we miss connecting it to the greater story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned there about the Trinity, talk to us about the Trinity and how maybe we miss some key points of the Trinity in, you mentioned the image of God, right? Mm -hmm. How we were created. I think it's confusing to people, even to pastors, even to people who've been in church their whole life. We understand the three parts of the Trinity, but maybe we miss the significance of it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of implications of the Trinity. <laughs> For sure. So when I was in seminary, and this was in a previous millennium, so you know, that's a long time back, um, I remember that our conversations around the Trinity at that time were around the idea that, well, at least it's not illogical. You know, at least it's at not least. like like you know, there's not a contradiction in terms, right? And of course, it is not a contradiction in terms. So that's that's a good start. Uh, some people some people have a hard time figuring out how God could be three and one at the same time. But I mean, the simple answer to that is God is three in one sense and one in a different sense. Mm -hmm. So I have one nose and two eyes. That's not really that hard to understand. It was, if I had three noses and one nose at the same time, now that would be actually contradictory, right? So just to, to start us off, all right, it's not a contradiction. It's not illogical. It's not something that we're trying to say there's one God and three gods at the same time, which would be contradictory. But in the years since, there's just been lots of very fertile conversation around uh, the concept of the Trinity and how it actually provides a model for our lives as well. So there's unity and also diversity. And if you think about the, the marriage between a husband and a wife, there's unity. The two shall become one flesh. And there's also diversity. Hmm. One is a male, one is a female. There are different personalities. There are different giftings. There are different experiences. 
And by the way, when you get into a marriage like that, it puts a real cramp on some of the things that you would like to do. <laughs> Freedom is constricted in that relationship. Because when I said yes to Sandy, in that very moment, I said no to about 4 billion other women who could potentially be my wife. Now, I can tell you for sure, when I stood in front of Pastor Jackson and said, I, David, take you sanity, be my lawfully wedded wife, in that moment, those four billion that I was saying no to, I wasn't thinking about that at all. And actually, that's kind of a model for all Christian ethics, because when you're focused on, on what's to gain, you're not focused on what you're, you're paying, what you're losing in order, to, in order to gain, right? But the Trinity with a community of relationships that is healthy and wholesome and pure and unifying and yet distinct in their person, that's exactly the way human community should be functioning. Right. And when our culture encourages us to think individualistically, like, I'm going to look out for number mm -hmm. one, I'll relate to you as long as it's helpful to me. If it's not helpful to me, you're going to cost me something, well, then tough, tough beans for you. You know, I'm just, I cut you loose at that point. Right. Well, that kind of self-centeredness, you know, maybe seems nice at the beginning, but it's what leads to isolation. isolation. It's what leads to anxiety, depression, and all these other things. And COVID, of course, has revealed to us the degree to which that kind of social isolation is destructive of human flourishing. Mm -hmm. So the Trinity is actually a model for how we should live in community. Sometimes even taking our initial desires and putting them on the back burner so that somebody else can experience, mm -hmm. which of course is what the Bible says, take thought to the other, uh, serve others, love others, and even sacrifice yourself. And there's yourself. freedom in that. There's goodness and freedom in there that. There is. Yeah, there's, there's, there's freedom and goodness in restraint. There's freedom and goodness in deferring to the other. I often tell college students and graduate students that we all know we're made for community. I mean, that's even a cultural cliche. But when you tie it into the theological origin of that, that community is first found in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are made in the image of a communal God, then our being in community makes total sense. Now, if I was in Islam, you have a singularity as the deity, and then community doesn't flow as logically and organically from a singularity as it does in Christianity. Uh, so when I'm with Muslims, and I, I do a fair amount of Muslim apologetics, that's one of the things I emphasize, that we start with community, and then human community makes sense after that. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. A lot of what we've talked about has been about those who maybe are waffling in the faith or atheist, obviously you brought up Islam and other religions. When you think about the question that's maybe brought up, and I read this just last night, a family had their daughter say, well, I think all roads lead to to heaven or all, all gods, right? Of course, there's some religions that are very different. There are others that are monotheistic, others that have tendencies or, or things that they've grabbed from Christianity and Judaism's past, when I, I think it, 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 the simple answer to we believe in Jesus, we believe what he did was true and that he raised from the dead, but maybe when answering that question to somebody who's younger, and obviously you, you talk to college students quite often, or maybe even a high school student that says to their parents, I don't know, I just, I think that God is, I believe in him, but I don't see any sort of significance or reason why 
we need to do all those things because I believe he's again he's loving he's great I, I believe in him I maybe maybe I was baptized as a baby or maybe I got confirmed or fill in the blank whatever it is that I'm good what would be your response to maybe a, a young person or a parent who's asking you the question how do I how do I respond to this question Are you asking the question of what about other religions or just about the Christian who's drifting a little bit? And Well, I would say the lack of importance, like whether I'm, an, I'm a Muslim, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist, I'm, or, or maybe even the monotheistic religions, but, but like it's not a big deal that I don't do those things, right? That the, the highway leads to flourishing, but, but I'm okay with being on the, the periphery of the flourishing mm. as long as I get in. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Because I think God's going right. to almost universalism in some mm -hmm, ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. I want to talk to students about the fullness of being a Christian. Now, God does share some of that fullness in other places. It's called common grace. So people of other religions or no religious faith at all, the nuns, the duns, the ex you know, a lot of different people get to experience the grace of God, but it's it's a it's a foretaste. It's it's a hint. It's a suggestion of the fullness uh, therein. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, we spend our time of, what is that saying, in the mud pies, mm -hmm. and we don't, playing around in the mud pies, because we don't understand what the beach is like. Mm. And so isn't it up to church leadership then and church laity to model the fullness of Christ in our lives? So this is too simple of an answer, but A, we have to model it, and B, we have to teach it. Right. <laughs> and unfortunately, a lot of times we don't model it or we don't teach it explicitly. And young people can, if we're not modeling it and we're not walking the talk, they can, they can see that right away. And so we have to walk into the room modeling it in Christian community with other Christians so that the whole church is modeling this fullness that God has placed in the Christian faith. Yeah, I like that fullness idea. I think that's really great. And uh, really, going back to the early uh, philosophical origins of, uh, in Western culture, you know, the question was, what was the good life? Hmm. Or one of the central questions was, what is the good life? What's the kind of life that at the end of the day, you know, you're going to say, that was a life worth living? Um, and to start with that question is to ask uh, not, what do I want to do this afternoon? What do I want for lunch? You know, when are we going to party? But to ask the question, you know, in the total scope of things, how will I live my life such that, you know, when I have passed away and people are speaking about me after my death, they will say that this life was well lived, mm -hmm. that it was a beautiful life, that it was a good life. So that's a, that's a, Great, great question. And I think to start from that, it, you know, sort of start with the end uh, and begin with the end in view and then kind of work your way, well, what kinds of things should I be doing in my life now such that in the end my life is, is a life worth living? And uh, I do think that the fullness of life is mm -hmm. a great way to think about it. I mean, Jesus said, right, I have come to give them life and life abundantly, abundant life. What is that life that's overflowing? You think of a, of a plant that is overflowing with fruit. Mm. We want to be living our lives in such a way that they're overflowing with fruit. Now, 
some people think that that uh, the the discipline that would be required to live such a life, you know, may not pay off. But it turns out that the Bible is confirmed by all kinds of social science and psychological evidence that tells you when you learn to become the person who is generous, who serves others, who is willing to sacrifice for the good of the group, um, who is empathetic with the, with the hurts and pains of others, when you live that kind of life, you're happier, less likely to struggle with mental health issues, and actually you live longer. People who are deeply in community, that community feeds something into my life such that even my body responds and I live longer. Yeah. So to me, all these lines can sort of so, sort of come to the same point that the kind of life that Jesus taught us to live um, is a life that, yes, it does require discipline. Yes, I have to limit my freedom. Yes, I have to say no to some things. Both those are things that are going to hurt me. And in the end, as I as I form that kind of life, it will be the sort of thing that, looking back, I will say, this was the best life I could have lived. And Tim Keller uh, chimes in on this issue, too. He says, this is the life we're called to. Uh, here's how to live it. Now go live it. That's kind of what we say from the pulpit quite often. And, and then Keller says, but wait, I can't live it. Yeah. But there is one who did. Yeah. And when we join together in faith with the one who did and uh, follow his model and live out our life in the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, it's the one who did live the life in front of us that we can emulate and follow. And when we are filled with his goodness and power, we can actually do these things. And I love that message because a common objection to what we're talking about on campus is that, well, I can do all that without God. I already have a good life. Why do I need you guys? But when real life happens, I'm speaking, this is a euphemism, when life happens, uh, where are you going to go? Right. And you're going to need more resources outside of yourself. And what Keller is getting at is those resources are found in Christ. And we need to point out to people that eventually you can't live the good life without Jesus. Well, it's a perfect landing spot for this conversation. And the time went too quickly, but maybe we'll have to do it again. But thank you both for this conversation. Mm -hmm. And if, the, if people want to learn more about or what you're working on, um, give them maybe a short thing to say, hey, I want to learn more, or you've taught me in this 40-minute conversation, um, where can people learn more about what you guys are doing? RickMatsonOutreach.com is my website, and uh, I have a book called Faith is Like Skydiving, which is, it's not just an apologetics book, because there's plenty of those out there, it's how to have the co apologetic conversations. Yeah. So it kind of coaches your conversations, and a lot of this I learned from this man, so he's <laughs> quoted in there a few times. He was my professor at seminary. That's awesome. Oh, that's great. Yeah, buy me a cup of coffee and I will <laughs> gladly spend an hour in conversation. Very cool. Well, thank you both again. Yeah. It was a pleasure. And thank you. Uh, I know this is going to bless a lot of people.